Stigma-Free Vet Zone is brought to you by the Orban Foundation for Veterans. Learn more by visiting Orban Foundation at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Donations help us continue to bring greater hope, understanding, resolution, and togetherness on issues of civilian readjustment for all military veterans and families. Please consider donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. As a thank you, you'll receive a free copy of the book Sold Out, Conquering the Experiences of War by Michael Orban. Receive your free copy by donating at OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org forward slash donate. I felt like I was, I was less of a man for being back home when others were in Iraq fighting. As far as being with my guys, the guys on my gun truck, we were at extra risk, but I justified that extra risk because we were making sure the rest of the body didn't come to come to harm or had less of a chance of coming to harm. Welcome to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Our mission is to help veterans and their family members make the transition from the military to civilian life and culture. As best we can, we avoid stigmatizing names and terms. We feature conversations with those who have encountered unexpected reactions in their journey, including such things as nightmares, rage, and isolation. Veterans and family members in our segments share experiences that make them uniquely qualified to join the quest to identify, understand, and resolve these enormous life challenges. Thank you for choosing to make this journey with us. Here is today's segment. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us and welcome to another educational segment of Stigma Free Vet Zone. I am Mike Orban and it is my honor to be your host on this beautiful May day. And on this beautiful May day, we are heading north to Eau Claire, Wisconsin to visit with David Carlson. David served two tours of duty in Iraq with the U.S. Army, achieving the rank of sergeant and is most certainly qualified to be in our discussion. So let's say hi to David Carlson and welcome to the show. Hey, what's up, Mike? How you doing? I'm doing great. Always excited to talk to another infantry soldier, especially from a different war. We get different perspectives. But let's jump right, right into it, David, and, and tell us a little bit about your life before the military, before your decision to enter the military. All right. Well, first, I live up in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. I have a wife, one son, and a son on the way. I work for the ACLU and full-time for Milkweed Connections as contracting as a mentor for Comprehensive Community Services. So that's where I'm at now. Do you want me to start there, Mike? Sorry. Yeah, well, no, do it. no, that's fine. Start a little bit earlier. You know, you're, okay. you're, right. Tell us a little bit quickly about your mom, your dad, your interests. I think that's an interesting part of your story. Okay. Prior to military, growing up, I had a pretty dysfunctional home. My dad was... At the time, they called them pimps. Now they call them human traffickers. My mom was one of his prostitutes. And then we had several other prostitutes that lived in the home with us, including their children. So then my half siblings, brothers and sisters, which I have quite a few of them, mainly older, lived in that environment till I was about five years old. A lot of drugs, a lot of violence, abuse towards the women. And then my mom ran basically running for her life. She was scared that my dad was going to eventually kill her. My dad, he was a Vietnam veteran, infantry also, had a lot of really bad, he had bad PTSD and just had a lot of violent outbursts and then including addiction and then his history, having grown up in, you know, Jim Crow South. He uh, was just a very angry individual and that played out in our home. My mom, when I was five, ran to her, her parents. So my dad's black, my mom is white. Ran to her parents in Rice Lake, Wisconsin, which is a predominantly white community. They're very conservative Christian. And we stayed there for maybe a, a month or so, or so, something like that. And she went back to my dad. And then this became the back and forth until eventually she broke away for good around probably around that same year when I was five and was completely in fear of her life. So we were hiding out, you know, doing things that prevent my dad from finding us, keeping the windows blinded, the doors locked, just all kinds of stuff like that. Very vigilant. Fast forwarding, my mom had many relationships with unhealthy men. I had a stepdad that was real abusive and had a lot of addiction issues as well. So 
that was kind of reinforced again for me. And then when she finally, she had gotten married one more time, when she divorced from him, I was about 10 years old. And that's where I went into a lot of reactive behavior, I guess you would call it. I started getting into a lot of fights in school, getting suspended and got expelled, committing crimes, vandalism, just a lot of behaviors. I wasn't necessarily seeking attention, but just I think this was how I coped. So we were back and forth a lot, which then landed us in the Minneapolis area, both South Side and North Side, Minneapolis. So about 12, 13, and 14, I had some gang involvement, drug dealing, uh, stuff that, you know, typically older guys were getting the younger kids to do. So I would be one of those younger kids to make them a profit. And for us, we wanted to be accepted. And then eventually got locked up for a year in juvie, Hennepin County Homeschool. I had had short stays in juvie prior to that, but this one, this time was for a year. And during that year, I made a lot of changes. And my grandparents in Wisconsin decided to adopt me out of the Hennepin County Homeschool. And I moved to Rice Lake, Wisconsin. And only first year, I was one of two black people in the school. Second year, I was in second and third year, I was the only black person in the school and just took a lot of adjustment. I had to work off pay, work to pay off a lot of restitution, a lot of tutoring and extra studying to get caught up on all my classes. But in that three-year period, I, I kind of made a comeback from where I had been 14 and younger. I played sports. Boxing was my main sport. My grandpa was my coach. And I had one other coach that had been involved in boxing for about 20 years and competed locally, statewide, and nationally in uh, the Golden Gloves and the USA Championship or the USA Boxing Tournament. After that, went on to college for a year. I got into the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And by that point, I'd done some drinking in high school. When I graduated, it kind of accelerated once I lost the structure of my grandparents' home and developed a, a drinking habit that now looking back, I should have foreseen coming my entire family is addicts and alcoholics. That hit me pretty hard. I was unable to be functional for any more than a few weeks at a time when I was drinking. And so even though I was still, you know, going to class enough to get C's, I wasn't doing very well in, in school. And I, I definitely had not integrated into the social environment of school. So I felt, you know, like an, like an outsider. And so I made a decision to uh, look into military. Active duty, a regular army was the only place that I stopped into, only recruiter I stopped into, said my juvenile offenses prohibited me from joining. I kind of put that on the back burner. And then I had a friend that went into a National Guard army recruiter. And that recruiter actually said, it doesn't matter what you got, we can get you in. So uh, <laughs> so then I went, I went guard. After my first year, my freshman year in college, I shipped out to basic training at Fort Benning, Georgia, that eight-week or nine-week period, whatever it was. And then I did an OSIT, so I did straight through. OSIT oh, being what, David? Yeah, basic training, AIT, so advanced individual training. And then I ended up getting an honor grad, so I went to airborne school. So I did that whole block of training all in one one section. Over that, it was the 2003 summer summertime. So the, so the war in Iraq had already started. Yep. Did that have anything to do with your decision to join the military or, or was it more, let's get out of this neighborhood? Well, initially, prior to uh, going to the to MEPS and doing some of the, they have the stuff for the guard that is like introductory type, like drill and stuff. You meet some drill, sar or, yeah, drill sergeants, you go to like Fort McCoy and you do like some little things just to introduce you to it. Prior to getting any of that experience, it was really just... I needed to change something. And most of the males in my family have been in the service in one form or another. It just seemed like a way to help me jumpstart like a, a better beginning than where I was headed. So, so now when you have actually joined the military, you've signed up, you've taken the oath and you're in the military. Do you remember feeling any sense of pride or brotherhood or any, any kind of attachment to an organization that gave you some honor, some pride, respect? Did it change your attitude toward yourself or toward yeah. life? Yeah, absolutely. So the first, I'm sure plenty of people can relate to this, but the first, like you, you go down to 30th AG and you do your, your medical screenings, all that kind of stuff. And then you finally go what they call downrange. When we went downrange, it was like after the first week, my battle buddy at the time was Andrew Belich. 
who ended up going on to special forces. And I assume that he's been operating in that capacity ever since, since back then. Me and him looked at each other after the first week and we were like, what the hell did we do? It's because it was, it was, I mean, you're homesick, even though like I didn't have a great home life. It was still like I was sick for, for being gone. And then we got people yelling at us every day. We had drill Sergeant Lewis. He was a huge black dude that was extremely intimidating. So, uh, and then all the drill sergeants were intimidating. So it was like, after that first week, it was, I felt, we both felt like we had made a mistake, but after probably the first couple weeks, then, you know, people started excelling at like, so getting smoked, right? You got certain people who smoked is like where they make you physically exercise for punishment and they'll punish you for everything, right? You wear your clothing wrong, they'll punish you. You speak wrong, they'll punish you. You get a letter from the wrong person, they'll punish you. So it was, uh, people started like excelling or moving ahead of the, the others in the group, like during smoke sessions, right? Where it's like, some people are like, no more, no more. And some of us are like, let's do more, right? Doing the exact thing that got us punished. And as that happened, that's, that's where my pride started to develop. I started realizing that I was able to withstand that treatment better than a lot of other people. So then I, I really doubled down on that. So in basic training, I ended up doing really well. I came to the, both the, the drill sergeants noticed me. I became platoon leader is what they call it in basic. I actually kept platoon leader for a, a very long period of time. Usually they rotate that out pretty quickly. Even had to you know put hands on one kid and the drill, drill sergeants found out about it and it didn't get me kicked out of the platoon leader position. So I decided for whatever reason under that structure, I... I kind of excelled. So, so now you're getting into it. You're getting into being a soldier. And, and then you come to the end of basic training and you are ready to go on to advanced infantry training. Yep. So by the end of basic, I, uh, you know, now you're looking back at it. You forget about that first week where you're like, what the hell did I do? And now you're like, basic training was easy. Like this wasn't anything. Went on to AIT and was very motivated for all of AIT. We'd be in the back room with you know, a couple of different buddies, we'd be, you know, lifting weights outside of the regular working out and training that we had daily. And our final FTX, our field training exercise, you know, there was just like a group of us that, that we just loved all of, we ate it up. We ate it up being in the field, not showering, having to walk around with wet boots, wet clothing, just being out in, you know, the Southern environment in the woods and stuff with all the critters and all that like we just we just took we just took a lot of pride in all of that stuff yeah. i think that's what contributed it was really just our our motivation and our attitudes that contributed to uh like my getting the uh, airborne slot honor grad and then the airborne slot was just you know we had good attitudes throughout all the training during this time is your family keeping up with you and writing you letters and are you are are you thinking about them how proud they are that uh, david carlson is not getting in trouble anymore he's not in juvie anymore it, what, what is your expectation or, or your experience relationship with your family at this point? Yeah, anytime that, I, that I've left my family for any period of time, so like being locked up in juvie, for instance, for whatever reason, I, like, you know, they'll reach out, they'll send letters and stuff, but I, I'm not very good with keeping contact. Like in basic training, I don't, I don't, I maybe wrote a couple letters. I'm not even sure if I did. So you were just but, getting um, into the training and the new life and the experience and the new buddies and all of, all of what was going on around you. Yeah, I found my identity, like everything, everything before, everything that had ever happened in my life didn't, didn't mean anything. Like I, I completely soaked up everything to do with being a soldier down to even the standards of making your bed in uniform. Like I loved, I loved every, every single part of it. The discipline. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about the discipline and we talk about the, the people you were meeting and all of the things that you were getting involved in. When you're get doing this training, for example, battlefield medicine or firing the M60 or the 50 caliber or the machine, whatever it is, are you putting any thought to where this is all going to take you? When you see the battlefield medicine, for example, you know, the sucking chest wound, yeah. <laughs> are you thinking, my God, I might actually see this? I might have to do this? I'm, are you still, is this still something that's a little bit further away from reality? I mean, it's pretty far away from reality. I think like infantry, especially, I think that, I mean, the, the army is is genius at conditioning people and desensitizing them to certain things because all of that type of training, once again, we, we, you know, jumped at the chance of, you know, becoming as proficient as possible for the expectation that we would have to use it. So, but I, I think that, you know, realistically, we couldn't imagine what it was going to be like to uh, have to use any of the stuff that we were, we were training for, even though we were as prepared as you probably can be having not seen that. 
that's a good place to jump ahead now. So, so now you're, you believe that you were trained properly to be a soldier, full soldier, and now you're getting ready for your first deployment to Iraq. How do you leave the military, go home for that short break, engage with your family? What is that atmosphere? And then take off for your first tour in Iraq. So when I got home from, well, before I went home, while well, I was still in airborne school, we got offered a RIP contracts, Ranger indoctrination program. So some of my active duty friends took it, right? Army guys. I have to interrupt you. Did they really yeah. call it Ranger indoctrination camp? <laughs> a program, yeah, RIP. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so RIP, RIP is the short, the short version. You do oh, that, it's like three weeks. You get into a battalion, then you go to Ranger school at a later date. Ranger school is where you get the tab. First, they have to clean out your mind and refill it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They got to get the weakness out of you. So. <laughs> okay, so how we go on? I volunteered for that, and the, and the state wouldn't let me go Wisconsin. They wouldn't release me to regular Army services. So I ended up, I was disappointed by that, but you know, I came home. Shortly after getting home, I was notified that we were going to be getting deployed. So what they call an alert or whatever, and that we were going to Iraq. So I was, I, I was very excited by it for that. But then back in the civilian world again, I fell back into the drinking and stuff because I was like, you know, I got this period before I leave anyways. So, and I had no structure in my life in the civilian world. So um, I just uh, fell how back long, How drinking. long was that leave? It, it was about a five month period in between oh getting done with uh, airborne school, getting home, and then yeah, probably about six months actually, something like that before we deployed for to train up. And then it was a six month training cycle before we deployed to Iraq. And so the entire time you're home, you're, you're just drinking and spending time, passing time, but not with any, no goals, no intentions, no activities. No, I was just kind of stuck in the same place I was stuck in prior to leaving for the military. I got a crotch rocket. <laughs> so that was, that was Explain something. A that, crotch rocket to, to uh, the audience. A motorcycle. So yeah. <laughs> Yamaha YZF 600. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, one of those, one of the real fast bikes. I would just ride. I would hang out. I'd go to bars. I just was, like I said, I was killing time. I honestly, like, I feel like the first identity that I really ever embraced in my life was what I found in, in training to be a soldier. And so when I got home, it was very frustrating because that ethos doesn't exist really to really any extent in the civilian world. So I on uh, the streets. Yeah. Yeah. On the streets. Exactly. So I had a very hard, just a hard time finding any purpose in what I was doing day to day when I was home. Any apprehension? I don't want to say fear, but we'll call it that fear apprehension about the date of departure for Iraq coming up or were you no, I was, for it? I was so excited. I, I was at my grandparents when phone call came into their house and when, when they told us we were going, or told me I was going to Iraq, I, I just, I don't know if I actually yelled like in excitement <laughs> or, or like what the response was, but yeah, I was very excited. It was like the best present or the best news that I'd ever heard. So, so, so now you get the news that you're going to Iraq, the date for you to depart, your departure comes to leave for Iraq. What is the goodbye like with your family? So, yeah, I was extremely hungover. <laughs> it was a Vogue field. And so I was very, very hungover. My, my I, I think training we period. should stop. I think we should stop and tell the audience that's part of military training too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So my family said bye when we went to train up. And so we flew out from Vogue Field down to Gulfport, Mississippi. And then we went up to Hattiesburg where Camp Shelby is right outside of. So yeah, I was, I was very hungover when I said bye to them. Uh, it was mainly my black side siblings. So the siblings that, you know, when I was talking about when we were younger, all the different moms that were working for my dad, all those siblings, they came, my mom was there. And then, but, but, um, but they're all proud of David and you're in your uniform. And so this yeah, is, yeah, they, this yeah, is all honor and patriotism. Side. Yeah. Yeah, my black side, it's like one of the, like, a, I mean, they hold it up as if like I've done something nobody else could ever do. You know, on my black side, they're extremely like proud and they, they bring it up quite often. You know, every year there's all kinds of posts about it. So yeah, they've always been very proud and they were all there. Then we, we went to Camp Shelby, you know, train up started. It was shortly in the train up that my alcohol became an issue. I got into trouble for it. I was able to actually knock that out just because I was so focused on doing well in the military that I just stopped after getting into a, <laughs> into a significant amount of trouble, but nevertheless stopped and just started focusing on training, you know, physical, paying attention to all the training we were doing in the field, paying attention to weapons, all of that. 
over that six month period. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. Oh yeah. Just over that six month period, I was just very, very focused. And once again, like nothing back home really caught my attention too much. I didn't communicate that much. It was, it was over that period. So our, our guard unit is from Barron County. So there was a Birchwood situation with a, a hunting family, a kid I went to high school with and some other members of his family had gotten shot. He died. And so like our unit or our platoon was all from that area. So, you know, people took that hard, but it was, it was also part of like, it helped us come together even more. I think that happened during our training down in Shelby, but outside of that communication from back home, I don't, wouldn't know if the world had disappeared other than, you know, what I was doing to prepare. So interesting that that one event would stick out in your mind of someone having been killed by a weapon when you're just preparing and and that brings you closer as as comrades in the military that that just makes a lot of sense but it has to be something a little deeper than who that person was i'm guessing it had to do with what you were your expectations were or the reality of what you were going to be doing absolutely yeah and there and there had been you know even during basic you know reports of people you know casualties coming back and then we had one guy from our town that got killed prior to me leaving. So it was already, you know, it was already, uh, it's getting closer pretty in the media. Yeah. It was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was starting to get like real as far as that side of it went. Yeah. But you know, once again, there's no, there's no way to have an accurate assessment of what oh, it's okay. going to actually be like. Okay. So, so now you're, you've gone through your, the secondary period of, of training and you get on the plane to go to Iraq. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, I'm focused, focused. We flew, flew into, I'm trying to, I think it was Al-Assad or something like that in Kuwait. I, don't quote me on that because I can't remember the name of all the bases and they changed all the time. But then we went to uh, Bayring and we were there for like two weeks. And that's where, so I didn't, you know, prior to going to the desert, I never thought that the desert got that cold. But so I, I go at ahead. night. No, I say that it got that cold at night. Yes. Yeah. Cold at night. Yeah. So, uh, you know, all the winter, winter gear, we had stuff that we could send over in Connexes. So that was by ship. And then we had stuff that we carried with us. Well, we carried, a lot of us carried with us, no cold weather gear. And so I had about a two week period of just freezing in Kuwait. That was the <laughs> the beginning. And I, I think that's like the best introduction to combat because you think you're going to be getting off a plane and, you know, rockets are going to be going off and you know, well, well, that's cold really for it, two that- weeks. That's really a good point, David, because a lot of us remember going into the actual country where the war was going on, but you haven't gotten there yet. You're in Kuwait. So yeah. you still have one more leg of this journey to get to the war zone to go. Yeah, yeah. From and uh, so part of, part of our unit, part of our unit convoyed up that part of the unit. They got hit, I think, like a few hours across the border or something like that. At least that was the report that came back. I mean, just hit like small arms fire. It wasn't. At the time, though, you know, small arm fire is like, you know, they're they're in engagements and all, you know, all this. But you know, they had some they had some rounds <laughs> shot at their vehicles on their way on their that's way major, up. But that's a that, major battle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at the time, while we were still in Kuwait, we were like, "Oh my God, we're ready to go! Let's go!" You know, and uh, so I, I, I think there's a, there's a point for everyone where you cross the line emotionally. At least for everyone that I've experienced or spoken to about the experience, I had it myself. And you remember that time when you've gone from the training, the playing, the drinking, and everything to all of a sudden, hey, this is real now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so you're in that now it's real. <laughs> yeah, our trip in was in a C-130. We landed in Anaconda, which was a combat land, which is they get over the base. And then within the diameter of the base, they do a, a corkscrew. Would that be the right term? Corkscrew or spiral to the ground. So it's basically like your stomach's in your throat the whole, the whole way down. And then straight from there, we got on a Chinook, which, which we call shit hooks. Flew out to Fob McKenzie in the middle of the night. So then as soon as we landed in Fob McKenzie, like McKenzie was barren. There was just a couple of different housing units. It was, it was big as far as the perimeter went, but there was very little or very few people on that base. When we landed in the, in the Chinook, our sergeants, the squad leaders and stuff were just screaming, get off, get off, get off. And then, you know, we formed the 360 perimeter and pulled security until the Chinook got, got away. And then we're just sitting there in the dark in the middle of what we thought was the desert. But then, you know, come to find out there was, there were, you know, housing units that were conics boxes with doors and windows there. And then, you know, 
few other things that M was it called MWR and then the uh, defect dining facility. But so just at, at the, it was kind of. Let me ask you this, David. So at this point, are you believing in the mission? Are you fully engaged in the mission? And tell us what happens in the sequence during your your first tour in Iraq. Yeah, I was I was one hundred percent on board. I was you know red, white, and blue, like just you know I'm ready to I'm ready to go for the country. And I just I just thought I really believed in in that narrative that you know we were uh, I mean we were heroes going over to do something heroic. So I, you know, that, that was what my expectation was and expectations were, I was let down pretty quickly. So yeah, throughout the course of the year, it was a back and forth between, you know, we, we had, you know, our main obligation for our unit was FOB security and civilian affairs security. I ended up getting on through contacts from basic training, actually getting on as a Bradley dismount with uh, one well, at first quarter cab and then two months in. 115 third ID came and replaced Cordicav. And then I continued being a Bradley dismount for them. And that was like my, what, what motivated me to do that, that extra stuff. Made it. And there was a couple of times that I actually just went out on mission with them without telling my own chain of command. So it so, was like, so I just so our going. audience, uh, just sorry to interrupt David, but just so our audience understands you were pulling security on a fob, explain that the fob. And then you were on a Bradley when you're talking about being on the Bradley. Now you're out really in the combat zones, but explain yeah, a fob. So, so forward operating base is the area where like troops are stationed, you know, all the logistics of, of carrying out an operation in a certain area or area of operation will come out of whatever fob it is. So fob security is basically, yeah, the fob security is just the towers. You either sit in the tower on guard duty or you sit at the entrance control point, ECP, on guard duty. And the ECP is where you check vehicles coming in. You check people coming in. You Like we had our Iraqis working on the base. We had Iraqis come to the base, like stuff like that. So it's really, it's not, it's very menial work and it's very unexciting. That was part of what motivated me to be going out or to volunteer to do Bradley dismount because sitting at the ECP, for instance, and seeing the Bradleys roll out, you know, guys getting their weapons ready and then rolling out on mission into the city, that was, I felt like I was doing less. So that's why I got on those missions ASAP as soon as I could when I got that connection. And, and how did those missions turn out for you through the balance of your tour, your first tour in Iraq? Yeah, I mean, that's that's where, you know, what they call getting your cherry popped. That's where I, you know, I had that, you know, firefights, RPG attacks, IED attacks, the, you know, throughout the year. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, not exactly what I thought that combat would be, but I think that's just because when you start getting fired at, you know, your wires start, start operating or your, I don't know, whatever it is, your mind starts operating differently. Yeah, exactly. It's not, it's not, it's none of that slow motion dodging bullet stuff. It's, it's, <laughs> it's almost getting, it's almost getting your shit shot off and then, you know, keep it moving. It's like luck, you know? Sure. So it was, uh, it was still, you know, I felt proud of what I was doing. I felt proud that I was doing twice as much as a lot of the guys that I came with. I felt like it just reinforced my identity as a soldier. And so I was very, like the entire year, I was motivated as hell to, to continue with that. Even after I saw guys start getting wounded, guys got killed. Iraqis were getting killed, you know, left and right. The elections missions were, we had the first elections, which were, I think there's something like preliminary type elections that happened back in 2004. And then a year later, there were the 2005 elections, both times. There was a lot of contact, which contact is... Um, attacks by the enemy. So yeah, it was just, it was just a lot. And towards the end, I had, I transitioned from, you know, feeling like I was doing something, you know, out of patriotism to feeling like I was doing something because I was responsible for the others around me. Like the patriotism portion wasn't really there anymore. So now you're, you're getting ready to leave Iraq after your first tour. And what are your expectations when you get home? And are you aware that you're going to be going back on a second tour? No, so I didn't, I didn't know if I, I mean, I wanted to go, to keep going back. I didn't know if that, what that would look like. Uh, there was a, a pretty mass casualty before, right before we left. Um, guys that, you know, I had a lot of respect for and that I served with a couple of them died on that, in that attack. And that was something that it really soured my feelings of going home completely. Like I, I wasn't, I wasn't excited. I, I was full of hate and anger by the time that it was time to fly home. I, I didn't, 
I didn't feel anything good about going home and I didn't miss anybody. I'm pausing to let that sink in because I think that's a critical, critical point where you don't want to go home and you're, you're switching from belief in the mission to what a lot of us experience in not being responsible for your own death or injury, but primarily not responsible for the injury or death of anyone around you. That's a completely different mission. So it goes from a global mission really to a, just a personal mission concerning only those people who are with you. Absolutely. You feel responsible for every person that gets hit, for every person that gets killed. Like you feel responsible for that, even though it's not rational. It's, it's still, I mean, it's still something that, you know, you, I struggle with today and that I have to have to like process through to realize that I'm not responsible, but you know, deep down inside, I still do feel responsible. Like that shit just doesn't go away. So it's at the time though, it was the four, there was the thing on the forefront of my mind. I couldn't see anything else. So by the time I got home, I was just, I was shut off to everything. You know, I had a girlfriend when I got home, my family had celebrations, which I don't remember what the celebrations were of me getting home. I just, I tried to start back, I tried to start school back up in between school. I worked construction. So this time I was very determined to remain disciplined because I wanted to get back on another deployment. So I didn't drink. I mean, I was, I was more structured than I've ever been in my life with working out. I was fighting again, as far as competitive fighting, both boxing and MMA, mixed martial arts. And uh, all of it was just to keep training myself to go back for that next tour. And so I completed three semesters of school again at UW-Eau Claire. And then I got an opportunity to volunteer for 105th Cav, who was going to be going over with a battalion from the 101st, uh, the 101st Transport. And then they had a bunch of different makeshift companies that were filling in for the different needs that that transport element needed. We were the security element for that. So convoy security was the mission. I volunteered for that deployment without asking my girlfriend. So uh, when I got the papers that I was going, I broke the news to her. She was extremely unimpressed and broke up with me. And she was really like the only humanity that was kind of like anchoring me in the civilian world. What kind of was like, oh, maybe I would want to come back. Maybe there was something to come back to the United States for. And that was, she was really the last piece. So when we, when she broke up with me over that, then it was just, I had no intention of ever coming home from Iraq. Earlier, the a year and a half earlier, when you said you just came home, you said you were shut off to your girlfriend and to your family. And I, I, I'm guessing you mean emotionally shut off to them. Yeah. So if you have no intimacy with them, and I'm not meaning physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy with them for a year and a half, I can't imagine she would have much more of a decision to make than uh, this isn't working for me either. Yeah, I think part of it had to do with, I mean, I probably did did quite a few things during that period to push her away anyways. And part of that has to do with like just how I came up or how I grew up. I expect everybody to leave. So that was that was only like magnified throughout this period. So honestly, when I told her, like it wasn't a full, like a big shock mm-hmm. that she broke up with me, but I just felt it more than I thought that I should feel it. Like I, like part of it, I wasn't as closed off as I thought that I was, is basically what I'm saying, I guess, because it hurt me. Like it hurt, it hurt really bad. So now you're, you're getting ready to go back to Iraq for the second time. And now you're clear of any responsibility or any family connections back at home. So now you're free to be a soldier again, but you mentioned now you don't really care if you come home. Yeah, no, I I had no intention of coming home. With the convoy security, I mean, just a few points from the second tour, like I ran, we had scout and lead vehicle. Those are the two vehicles that we pushed way out in front of the convoy just to, we're going to run across something those two vehicles run across it rather than the whole convoy being held up and doing the accordion thing, which puts people at more risk. So I always volunteered. I was the one that was in either lead or scout out there in the front, got blown up directly a couple of times and then several other, you know, close calls and then one find, which <laughs> I had a, a squad leader that made fun of me for only finding one. All the rest of them I found the wrong way. IEDs, <laughs> that is. But, <laughs> and I, I'll tell you the truth. The only reason I found the one, and I shouldn't really get credit for this, is because if so it was a trip wire it was a pressure wire <laughs> IED. And we actually drove over the wire. Like the wire was a big, like it looked like a hose. 
attached to a shell in the middle of the road on uh, this was Tampa, MSR Tampa. <laughs> and we actually ran it over. So had it not been been defective, that wouldn't have been a fine. It would have been So I really should I shouldn't I shouldn't get that, that credit, <laughs> I should get for, credit for that. Yeah. that one. <laughs> you might as well found an empty beer can. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But I'm gonna take credit for it. So <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, so anyways, yeah, so it was, you know, just running and gunning that entire time. And I just did a lot of things. I talked to my gun, my gun truck crew about the fact that just the way that the position that I was putting them in being out front, it was extra risk. And if they didn't want to be an extra risk, they shouldn't be in my team or on my gun truck. And both of them, you know, agreed to that with, you know, full, full knowledge of, you know, what could happen because, you know, that was probably a couple of weeks into it that I had that discussion with them and, you know, things had already occurred. So, so at this point, though, back to the mission, you're not believing in the mission again. Uh, I, I mean, you haven't found the mission again. If you're not believing in the mission, you become a true soldier that is just there to complete the mission and not have any of your men hurt. But the mission itself, whatever that might have been, is no longer part of your thinking. No, I, the, only, the only reason that I was there was, I mean, because, I mean, it's, it's strange. It's hard to, hard to explain. It was, if I was back home, I felt like I was... I was less of a man for being back home when others were in Iraq fighting. As far as being with my guys, the guys on my gun truck, we were at extra risk, but I justified that extra risk because we were making sure the rest of the body didn't come to come to harm or had less of a chance of coming to harm. But in reality, like if I really, if I really, you know, pick all that apart, I don't know that, that those reasons could, would hold up because, you know, there's a lot of people that I didn't like. But once again, I still felt that that duty. So I'm, I'm not sure. It's, it's very hard to explain. I think it's just the duty piece that I felt, I felt extremely, extremely strongly. So, so now um, you're getting ready to leave Iraq after your second tour. How are you feeling about leaving Iraq and your expectation of going home? Yeah, I couldn't believe that I, that I made it through. I did a lot of stupid stuff over that tour, a lot of risky stuff. And it's just luck that I, that I made it back, you know, without being dead or be facing a court-martial. So when I got home, it was just my mom picked me up. I had already drank, I already got drunk. I remember the next day when I woke up from having drank the night before, like she was like, you're not even recognizable. And that's, that was basically the, what everybody said to me that I came back into contact with my grandparents, my siblings, like people just didn't, didn't know the siblings on the black side were more understanding because of my dad's situation. It didn't know who you were physically or personality wise. Didn't Person, know. Personality, they didn't, yeah. they didn't recognize me. That's not the guy that left here. No, no. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's all it was between two, when I got back in 2008, between then and eventually getting incarcerated, which I'll get to, get to that. It was just a back and forth of trying to like maintain and function. So in and out of the VA, I tried school again. I made it one semester, but I couldn't hold on suffering from dealing with addiction. I was drinking. I was huffing now. So that's these aerosol cans you use to get high. And that was strictly because I didn't have like any kind of like people dealing drugs around me. So it was, you know, that's just what I turned to. And it just took me out of reality. And that's what I did for that period between or after getting home with a couple of breaks of being sober and clean. But I was just miserable. Like I just, I just, I couldn't, I, I hid from people. I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk to people. I didn't want people to see me. I felt like shit. I felt I was a piece of shit. And the only thing that could ever bring any kind of value back to my life was going back again. So, you know, throughout this period, I was trying to get on deployments, but I was too unreliable to do the shit that I needed to get done to get back on the deployment. So it was just, just nothing but, you know, really just suffering for that period in between or after getting home and then getting locked up. So before we get to the lockup part, let me just ask you about your friends and some of the activities that you enjoyed before you went into the military, before you went into Iraq, the friends you had before you went into uh, your two tours of duty in Iraq. When you came back home, did you enjoy the same sports, the uh, Green Bay Packers, whatever it might have been, or enjoy going out with the same people and spending time, the same friends? Or was it, as for a lot of us, whoever will drink with me is my friend? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, to tell you the truth, like before going, it was hard for me to have like real friendships or what I think others describe as real friendships, probably from the way I grew up, but I had the desire for real friendships and I had the desire for love and companionship 
prior to uh, coming back from that second tour. When I got back from that second tour, I didn't have that desire anymore. I didn't have the desire to have any connection with anybody. So was there think, anything that you really cared about or, or were you were you just oblivious to everything psychologically? No, I, I, there was nothing I cared about. I didn't, I, I felt like I was lower than, there was no bottom for me. Like there was nothing, like I didn't even, there wasn't even stuff that I thought was like disgraceful anymore. Like I just, I just, I was uh, like a didn't worm. Care. Like, I didn't care. I didn't care. I didn't, I was lower than low. That would, but you didn't certainly didn't expect that coming home after your your entry into the military and you had such great pride in the first time that you had a purpose in life and a self driven purpose in life and now here you are with absolutely no feelings no emotion did that concern you at all did did this bring on let's talk about sleep or let's talk about nightmares or flashbacks or panic attack any of these things anger rage uh, are you experiencing any of these reactions. Yeah. While I was still like in one spot, because I started moving around, then I went to Seattle for a while and stuff. While I was still in one spot in my apartment, I'd sit and watch CNN all day. I was always using and drinking besides the times that I was, you know, like there was a, a couple periods in there where I was sober and clean after treatment. But for the most part, I was I was messed up. So between being messed up and whatever other issues that, you know, I had at that time, PTSD, stuff from PTSD, as I know now, I couldn't sleep unless I passed out, probably in part because of the, the, the substances I was using. I had a lot of hallucinations. I um, was hyper, hyper vigilant. I always thought something was going to happen. I always had weapons around me. I was very depressed. I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't sleep unless I passed out. And that's how I, that's how I slept was I would drink vodka until I passed out. So it was just, I was like my, it's hard to explain what was going on in my head. I, I felt like an animal. Like, honestly, I just felt like a, like a starved animal. So, like that's, so that's what is I'm it picturing. fair to say you didn't even know what was happening? No, I didn't at all. I still didn't believe it was PTSD though. Like I thought it was just, I, I actually am fucked up. Like, you know, from my youth and all that kind of stuff, you know, there's plenty of times where people said that I just wasn't, I wasn't like a good person. And so now I just believe that I just wasn't a good person. Like I didn't think it was, you know, any kind of mental health issue. Did you have, ever have the experience, having been the lead Bradley on these road missions in Iraq, did you drive down the highway looking at things on the road as if they might be explosives or looking for dangers as you're driving along? Were you th that type of hypervigilance? Yeah. So second tour was uh, ASV, so armored security vehicles for the convoy security. But yeah, so in situations where something catches me by surprise, it could be a flash of light off a window. I mean, that that most likely, you know, comes from having been blown up or having your vehicle blown up by IEDs. It can be garbage. It could be a person driving too aggressively or getting too close to you. And my heart rate will just jump through the ceiling. Like I feel like I'm in full out like war mode. So back then I did have a couple of situations that fortunately the other person decided not to engage. Otherwise they probably would have turned into, you know, pretty bad road rage situations just because my heart it's like you literally feel it. Like you could see it. You could look down and see your heart beating in your chest. And it's just like you are you go from being just driving and, you know, alert, but just driving to all of a sudden it's like you're kicking, a kicking in a door again. It's just like it's, it's, it's very hard to, to describe. I would think so. Uh, so let me ask you this, David. So w would it be fair to say the drinking, the huffing, all of these things that you were doing, would it be to bury all of those feelings that you are not familiar with or not expecting? Yeah. I just, you know, in my normal state, I, I didn't, I didn't want to live. It was, it was, it was painful. Like it just emotional pain, but it was just, it was just extremely painful in my, and just the stuff in my head. And like, I just couldn't, the thoughts, pictures, everything going on in my brain, just, it just was too much, even from childhood, like everything, it was like, it was just always racing through my head. I couldn't think of anything else. You know, everybody else is seeing a nice day and I'm seeing the same thing over and over and over and over every single day. There just was no point to it. Did you ever have a sense that you were in a foreign country? You know, you came home, but you really don't belong here. People don't understand you. You don't understand them. Uh, that sort of sensation. Yeah, well, I just thought everybody else was I mean, in the wrong country. All kinds of, uh, yeah, I mean, all kinds of all kinds of different terms for it. But yeah, it just it just I mean, all of that. So they call it like intersection, where all these different pieces intersect, and it was like there was so much wrong 
with what was happening with me being back and like even like trying to listen to someone speak to me about the shit they thought was important was just impossible to do. I couldn't do it. So, so it was really overwhelming, emotionally, yeah. mentally overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So take us through, I, I know you had a lot of different experiences that bring you up to incarceration, going off to prison, but take us up to, to the part of actually going to prison. A couple of the things that got you into trouble with the law, got you into the maximum security or medium security up in Northern Wisconsin. And go through that prison experience for us, David. At the tail end of all my addiction, all my running around, I ended up, I committed three burglaries. And in one night I got drunk, committed these three burglaries. And just prior to that, I had assaulted somebody. So these two things together got me locked up. I just basically, when I was that first initial 10 months when I was locked up, I you know thought just about every day of killing myself. They gave you razors to shave with. And it was just something that I thought about all the time. The one thing, once again, that stopped me was I was scared of going to hell. Uh, my white side grandparents that lived in, in Wisconsin, they were very religious. And I truly believed or I had enough of a belief that if I killed myself, I'd go to hell. So uh, that was the one thing. But I, and I, I really wished that something would happen to kill me and this have it be done. I got veterans court. I ended up failing veterans court. And so then I got sentenced to three years in prison. 12 years supervision, which is like probation. And that's when, you know, things kind of changed as far as my mindset. I wasn't depressed anymore. I was angry. And so I worked out nonstop. Like I worked out, like a lot of people say they worked out nonstop, but I really worked out nonstop. And I did it just to fight. The prison became my battlefield. Prison became my combat. And I enacted and rehearsed, you know, every scenario that you can, just in terms of, you know, only having your body as a weapon. That, that was my my time in prison. I got away with a lot of a lot of fights just because once again, you know, I operate as, as if I was in a combat zone and I just moved that way. It's hard to explain to people that haven't been there, but like that's all I contemplated was violence when I was in. Got out for three months. During that time, I just engaged in criminal behavior. I just I didn't care. I was pissed off, operating off being pissed off, and then ended up locked back up. In that, in that last part of lockup, I did a significant amount of whole time. Whole time is like solitary confinement. And during that solitary confinement, came to a choice that I was going to kill a guard and kill myself or I was going to change. And that, that was just brought on by just getting in so much trouble. Most of the trouble I got into was when I was in prison or jail. Like that's where most of my charges come from. I decided that I was going to change, that I, I just couldn't, I couldn't feel like I'd been feeling for so long. And I just structured my routine around working out, reading, communicating with a mentor that I had on the outside and just talking through things with no, no formal structure, but just, you know, talking about the stuff that, that was happening both inside the prison and then, or the jail and then prison. And then also just lessons that I'd learned, you know, I come across other vets incarcerated that felt like I felt in that first 10 months but I just wanted to kill myself. I didn't take care of myself because I just didn't care about anything. And I'd see them the same way. They wouldn't eat. They wouldn't socialize. They wouldn't do anything. So I try to give them food. I try to talk to them. I try to introduce them just so that, uh, or the people that mattered as far as like, you know, not getting into like any kind of physical alteration, altercations and stuff like that, because I could just relate to where they've been. And I communicated these experiences then through email and through, through letter. I came out, I got released December 2015. And I came out with just a strong desire to help veterans, guys that have been in similar situations as me, because there just had been no effective help for me when I got back. Not that I, either I wasn't ready for it or it was just ineffective. I don't know which one was which, but it ended up being, you know, sagging me developing my routine and individuals who weren't involved in the healthcare system that ended up helping me through. So that was my mission when I got out of prison and I did my last four months in, in a max prison. I got sentenced to two years and I only had four months left in that two years. I did most of the time in jail. So the last four months were in a max security called Dodge. And then that's where I was released from. So you're, you're getting released from, and we won't go back into it, but uh, from the terrible, terrible environment of prison where you actually had no mental health treatment from 
anyone above the the profession of social worker, I think, which certainly didn't help with that. So now you get out and you're you're anxious to help veterans. And tell us now about what that stigma might have done for you. Was this helping you to look for something to help veterans? What was going on in your world now that gave you this, after being so low, gave you this stimulus to want to go out and do something for other people? And where did you go and how did you do that? So I think that it was the same feeling of duty when I got out, the same feeling that brought me back to Iraq for my second tour, the same feeling that got me to volunteer for all the missions that I volunteered for on my first tour. That same feeling was what inspired me to help veterans when I got out of prison, except for the difference was it wasn't about violence or it wasn't about you know going to combat because I realized that the most help that I could do for veterans was right here at home through, you know, self-empowerment like I had done when I was locked up. And I think that that occurred because I had been so violent when I was in, when I was in prison, when I was in jail. Of course, this violence was just, you know, fighting, but it was serious fights. And it was, you know, the mentality of it that really, I don't know, it just, it got me to the point where I had enough. So when I got out, I joined up with this group, Next Objective. I met the guys that were running it through a guy that I'd went through basic training with. He's always, he's been my friend throughout this entire time. He actually just completed Q course for SF special forces. So he's still, you know, he's still soldiering hard. I, the next objective was a group that worked, worked out together. So through CrossFit gyms, they would call people from the community in, raise money through CrossFit workouts, and then donate that money to an individual vet veteran. You know, it could be for a down payment for a house, I know that the next objective for one, I think it was a single amputee or double amputee. They built a gym in his house with the money. So all the money that got collected, they just sponsored specific veterans. And the point was to get the bureaucracy out of it where, you know, 80% of the funds went to something that wasn't actually helping a veteran. I don't know if it's that much. That might be an exaggeration, but too many of the funds get wasted on things that aren't actually going to the veteran. So that was, that was the next objective's way around it. And I was just very very involved with them. I went to all, it was once a month that we had these uh, events. And then that's what also got me involved in CrossFit. CrossFit was, or is a workout methodology, but it's a huge community of working out. And it's also, I was started, I believe it was started by Navy SEALs actually, or started somewhere by Coronado. And I know that a lot of SEALs do it. And that's transferred over to special forces in the army is transferred over to the regular PT standards in Marines. So it may even be even more because it's been a long time since I've been in. So that was the, the working out I did. And through that, through CrossFit, I've been in to bring more, being able to bring more veterans in through sponsorship by like the next objective or through gyms and help them with the physical fitness piece, which was really like my start to bringing back like my sanity. Then from there, with, with the CrossFit, which is really a very strenuous physical exercise, is this exercise actually helping you with the struggles you were having with your anger and, and the other issues you were, you were having? What's the benefit to you in your military experience in the condition you were in when you came home and were in prison of physically exercising? Yes. So, like, I mean, I don't know about other people. For me, I don't, I don't think PTSD ever goes away or whatever, whatever, that, whatever it is that PTSD is saying that it represents. I don't think that ever goes away. So if I don't work out, if I don't stay physically prepared, if I don't burn off that anxiety, like my, my hypervigilance is still where it was at when I was screwing up and when I was an addict and when I was drunk and all of that, it's like that, that shit hasn't changed. Like it's, it's not as pronounced because I have so many processes in place to uh, combat it. I don't take medication, but my met, but if, we were to say I had the medication, it would be that physical fitness and the CrossFit specifically because you go until you can't go anymore. And that's what I need. If I don't, if I don't drain my body of all of that on a re very, very, very regular basis, sometimes multiple times per day type basis, I start going back to the same place in my head that, that I've been to before. And I just, I just don't think there's ever a cure to that, at least not that I've seen. Do you think it's necessary to think of it as a cure or do you think it's a necessity, a necessity between the, the, the distinction between the reactions to war controlling you and you controlling the reactions? Like you say, you have a ton of these things that you do when you're having some of the, the responses from war. Do you think you've learned to control those better? So you're in control of, I'm not going to say the acronym, you can, but whatever the condition we have is from these experiences, the hypervigilance, the anger, the filthy, filthy language that we have, all of these things that we come home with, they control us or seem to control us. It's that point where all of 
us that you get to the point where you have a tape of responses in your head to combat those those reactions, and you really get a sense of being in control of them. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's it. I mean, and it's like, I think that the biggest thing is, is once I stopped expecting to ever go back to what I knew life was, like as far as, or what I thought that I wanted before combat or before coming home from my second tour, once I accepted the fact that I was never going back to that, I started seeing like a roadmap or not necessarily a roadmap, but I started seeing the development of a plan to move forward under the conditions that I had now, which meant that I could, there was, there was certain things that I had to be disciplined in. And sometimes I think of it as like a warrior's burden. There were certain things I had to be disciplined in daily that others didn't. And it didn't matter that they didn't. Like I could, I could sit and feel self-pity for myself that I got to do all this extra shit to function, function, or I can just do the extra shit and be functioning at a higher level than others around me. But it's like one or the other. There is no in between. I can't sit and sit on the couch all day and not be proactive and productive without slipping back into that same frame of mind. So it's, it's just, it, it is what it is. This is my life now. So, so you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, David, that you don't take medicine. Had uh, anyone in the, the mental health community in, in your experiences offered you medication or prescribed that for you? Yeah, I was put on all kinds of different medications during my time in and out of the VA. And, you know, I can't, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a provider now for like mentorship and, and peer support for individuals. So, you know, I only speak for myself when I talk about the medication. Right. I think there are certain situations where people need medication to make it, over, make it through the rough patch or through a period of, of, you know, where they're just not functioning. For me personally, though, you know, it just, it just wasn't, it wasn't doing anything for me. And the more that they tried for me, the more frustrated they became. And the more that I doubted that I'd ever be able to function again, because I was, these were my people giving me all the answers. So, you know, if I hadn't found the answers for myself, I would still be dependent on medicines that may work or may not work. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I can't say from personal experience that they work or not. So, Absolutely. so, so the, these, these activities and these successful experiences that you're having now, could you have been introduced to those immediately after returning from Iraq or is this just a natural process of dealing with the, with, with life as it came? Yeah. So I think, I think the VA is catching on now as far as the uh, recovery coach role. So a recovery coach is an individual who has gone through the experiences like, like I've gone through and other veterans have gone through, but they come back after, you know, after getting stability in their life and training, they come back and they help veterans in these programs. But the problem is, is in any kind of treatment program for v, in the, in the VA, you'll have, you know, 30 different social workers and you'll have one recovery coach. I think you need to have 30 different recovery coaches and one social worker. Agreed. And then, 100%. I, and, then I, yeah, and then I think that you would have immediately when I would have gotten back, there would have been a lot more likelihood that I would have taken the right steps and taken advantage of the resources that may or may not have been available at the time. But just having that group surrounding me would have been, it, it was it was a necessity at that time. I mean, it was like a year and a half before I fell into criminal trouble. You know, prior to that, you know, falling into criminal trouble, it was just me you know, destroying myself because that's, that's all I wanted to do. Like well, and, and you really didn't know what, what else to do with those responses. You, you weren't even expected to have all those responses. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, that, that's an important and powerful statement to have these, I believe that the VA is calling them peer, peer counseling now, but what you're calling them, I think is a better term actually, because it, it fits more into the patriotism, the honor and all of that sort of thing. But what a wonderful thing to think about, to have people who have had the common experience share that common experience with the next person coming home who needs that. And I won't call it mental illness. I'll call it that education to get that information from a person with the experience that's going to help me get through this time because they have been there. That's education. That's what's missing yep. in what we're doing today is the education to resolve your experiences and to, to accept uh, the part of it that is just part of the human experience or the, the military experience. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, you know, you know, the different approach. So like take a social worker from a recovery culture from, so I'm like a peer specialist. Now that's what I do with the milkweed connections that the job that I talked about in the very beginning, I'm a mentor slash peer support for children under 18 or individuals who have come in trouble with like law enforcement or they're having trouble in school or just in life in general. And, and a lot of times they're kids of color. The approach that I take that differs from the approach that a social worker takes is I tell the kid, I'm in this shit with you. I'm in this shit with him because one, I know how he feels. I've been through this shit. 
I don't know exactly how he's perceiving what he's going through, but I, I can relate from how I felt and how I perceived what I was going through. So then when we're working together, he knows he doesn't have someone, you know, standing above him telling him what to do. He has someone that's with him. Like, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk this path with you, you know, and let, let's do it. You know, we come across challenges. We're going to address that shit together. It's not, it's not, you know, someone just throwing textbook ideas at you or even someone that's gone through maybe some of it, but then they're coming from a, a point of trying to educate you on what you should do. No, you need someone that to walk by you through that shit. And that's, that's what is, I think that's the way that a lot of this treatment and therapy is going is in I, that direction. I certainly hope you're right. And, and I would add to that, if you are a veteran or a family member of a veteran now who is struggling with uh, your, your first experience in readjusting from the military, from war, listen to what David has just said, because I think that's a powerful, powerful example of what you need to look for or what you might want to look for is somebody else who's been through that experience who can at least understand where you've been. I, I will say it this way. I have five sisters and four of them have been pregnant and given birth to children. If you want to know what it's like to be pregnant and give birth to a child, don't ask a male gynecologist. <laughs> ask another woman who's been pregnant and given birth to a child. And it's no different in a concept for men who have been to war to get their counseling from another man who's been to war. It just makes perfect sense rather than going and to somebody who doesn't understand what you've been through and say, well, I, I don't know how to treat you, so take a handful of these. And I think that's part of what our, our whole podcast is about, that resolution to find an educational way to resolve these issues. So we're running a little bit short on time, but you're, you're such an inspiration, David. You also had difficulty in your first experiences going to college. You, you got through with C's, but now after coming home from prison, you've gone back to college. And how did that turn out? Yeah. So I graduated from a UW Eau Claire in uh, 2019, 2019, something like that, 2018. My major was English. So my bachelor in, in English, creative writing was my emphasis. I got a legal studies certificate, which was in uh, constitutional law. And then I had a uh, minor in race, ethnicity, and society. And that, that, all of the topics that I took and what I graduated with, they were, I took them because they really correlated with how I came up, what I went through in the military and what I went through going to prison. And I just wanted to be more informed on what, one, what the academics were saying about it, but two, you know, the historical context of like how my situation has played out for others. And so now I use that to help on the individual level, which is the mentorship that I do, but then also on the bigger picture level, which is I do work with the American Civil Liberties Union to help people who have been incarcerated or are underserved in the community or are underrepresented in the community or in education, things like that, just being an advocate for individuals who need help. The type of person that, that you know, I wish that I would have met when I was young or when I got back from my second tour or when I was in prison. That, that is just very, very powerful. I don't want to overlook this, but when you did go back to college and, and study English, did you do better than C? Oh, yeah. I got a, what, what, do they, what do they call it? You made fun of me before for saying this the wrong. Cum de laude or whatever, whatever it's called. It, it, I graduated with it. over a three point. I graduated with over a 3.5. You graduated with honors. You don't know how to say yeah. it, but you graduated with honors. <laughs> But David, tell us, tell us if there's hope for the veterans struggling, for the family who doesn't understand their veteran. As you said, when you came home, people didn't know you. You were not the person that went off to war. Is there hope by reaching out rather than to the alcohol and the huffing and to the prison and to whatever else you might be looking for, the isolation, the anger, the hatred, the nightmares? Is there some value in actually never giving up looking for the person that can help you? Absolutely. I think that, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest hope lies in, in each veteran. I think that we need to be that, that duty that we felt to go, you know, commit acts of violence and, you know, possibly have acts of violence committed on us for our brothers. We need to bring that, that same, you know, motivation and feeling of duty here and realize we need to reach out in the same way we did when we were in combat but this time to help people in a productive way, in a way to empower them, veterans especially, and then to families and stuff, it's just being there. You know, you can't, you can't tell a veteran when, when he needs to be okay. And you can't expect that, you know, they're going to have a couple of hiccups and everything's going to be all right. They're going to get it right, you know, this time. Like, I mean, it's, everybody has their own path of dealing with these, these challenges and these nightmares. 
and the best thing you can do is just be there for them. Well, that's certainly one thing you can do, but I, I would certainly encourage any family to reach out to their county veteran service officer as well, who will provide them with different resources that are available to them as family, family members of a veteran. But I would also tell, say for the veteran, and, and I think about this all the time, we did come home from war. And if, if we hadn't come home from war, would we want the people who did go home, who did leave and get through it, would we want them to go home and suffer? Or would we want them to go home and respect their life and make something out of their life because they did get to go home? If you had died in war, you'll never get that opportunity to get married, to have children, to get the job you want, to race your motorcycle, to get drunk, to do your huffing. None of that is all gone. <laughs> so in a way, you know, how do we live our lives, not necessarily for ourselves, but also for our families and for, for the guys and the women who didn't come home. And secondly, I, I think it's very important for us not to think of the veteran as the primary health care unit, but for the veteran and his family to be considered the primary health care unit and work on healing that all as one. So, David, one last word of inspiration. Uh, uh, burpees, cleans, and snatches. Those are, those are clear. Those are cure anything. Okay. <laughs> and I, I think he's not talking about vegetables. And I, no, and no, no, no. He's talking about physical exercise. Uh, a lot of <laughs> things. So, well, thank you very much for coming on the program, David, and I hope to have you back again. And if we can get you maybe to write a little bit for our blog page and, and be a resource for veterans who might come and, and look for some of the, the resolutions that you've found. But it's an honor to know you, honor to have you on the show and, and, and keep doing the great work you are. Oh, and congratulations on the son to come. You forgot to say you were married. Oh, I guess you did mention you were married, but congratulations on the second baby that's coming along. Thank you. Mike's a good name. <laughs> that's real. <laughs> All right, David. Thank you. Thanks for thank, right, thank thanks. you, Mike. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Stigma Free Vet Zone podcast. Your feedback is always welcomed and encouraged. You'll find contact information on our webpage, OrbanFoundationForVeterans.org. Our program is produced by Blueberry Pro Productions. On behalf of Michael Orban, this is Bob Bach. Thanks for joining us, and please tune in again.